It's common for forms of serial fiction, such as comic books or film and TV franchises, to have a new start to that universe. It's called a reboot. And on occasion, when you're discarding the previous continuity or plot lines, the rebooting producers will change the tone of the text. They might favour a more gritty, realistic theme. And the reboot that I'm really hoping we're going to get from Disney is titled Tax Pirates of the Caribbean. In this action-packed drama, a devilishly handsome team of tax specialists travel to Jamaica. Armed with their rapier wits and a brilliant knowledge of the tax code, they confront the bandits of the Cayman Islands, the Bahamas and Bermuda, who've been luring away the revenue that should be funding the schools and hospitals of Jamaica. Those scallywags have been exploiting the citizens of Jamaica for many years, so the last thing they expect is that a team of accountants will bring their lurks to an end. But ultimately, the good guys win, and the social services of Jamaica are safe for another day. The script should be quite easy to write, because the events are actually playing out in Jamaica right now. The Jamaican Tax Authority has borrowed a bunch of expert tax auditors from Germany. The accountant equivalent of Captain Jack Sparrow is a man named Stefan Scholz, who said he jumped at the opportunity to fight inequalities and give countries added confidence in their dealings with large taxpayers. Jamaica put a request for help on multinational tax assistance and within three weeks, Mr Scholes found himself in Kingston auditing the tax affairs of some of the largest multinational firms operating in Jamaica. They'd been funnelling profits to the surrounding tax havens until Mr Scholes put a stop to their activities. You can almost imagine the scene in the Kingston bar afterwards as the lawyers compl complained, in a fair fight, I'd kill you. And Mr Scholes replied, with his Captain Jack Sparrow wit, well, that's not much of an incentive to fight fair, is it? Last September, I had the pleasure of announcing here at the ANU the latest part of Labor's plan to crack down on tax havens. Following the extraordinary leaks in the Paradise Papers and the Panama Papers, the work of the United States and the Australian Senate committees, the campaigning by tax advocacy groups, we're starting to build up a picture of how multinational firms use shell companies and tax havens to avoid paying their fair share. Every now and then this new little snippet emerges. My favourite from earlier this year is the fact that the Bahamas is now the country that is the fifth largest owner of, foreign owner of Australian farmland. Globally, around $600 billion of profits are estimated to be shifted to tax havens, representing almost 40% of multinational profits. There's at least five reasons to be worried about tax havens. First, they siphon money away from jurisdictions like Australia. That means that we have to either increase the tax burden on individuals or businesses, take on more debt or cut social services. Tax havens and similar shenanigans have been estimated to cost the Australian taxpayer the equivalent of six billion US dollars a year. Second, tax havens are the hiding ground for a lot of crooks. Not everyone in them is a crook, but they are used by drug runners, extortionists and money launders by Al-Qaeda, the North Korean regime, and the Mex and Mexican drug kingpins. It's estimated that around four-fifths of the money sitting in offshore bank accounts is there in breach of other countries' tax laws. And third, tax havens increase inequality. 
Offshore wealth held by Australians in tax havens is estimated around 6% of national income. That means there's more than $100 billion in assets held offshore by wealthy Australians. Now, I've used the term wealthy, but actually I should be looking for a stronger term. Very wealthy, extremely wealthy. One study suggests that half the money held by individuals in tax havens is held by people who are in the top one ten thousandth of the wealth distribution. Fourth, if the case for a big business tax cut wasn't already fairly lacklustre, tax havens make it even weaker. The more that multinationals stash their profits in tax havens, the less sense it makes for advanced nations to engage in a race to the bottom in corporate tax rates. Fifth, poverty rates are high in many tax havens and in nations affected by their activities. Some researchers believe there's a thing called the finance curse, akin to the resource curse, in which there's an adverse impact on countries which are tax havens for being overly dependent on those sectors. Managing Director of the IMF, Christine Lagarde, observes that developing countries lose about $200 billion in revenue per year, or about 1.3% of GDP, due to companies shifting profits to low-tax locations. And it's that final point that I want to elaborate on, how tax havens hurt other developing countries and what we can do about it. One study aims to put a figure on how much revenue each nation loses as a result of tax havens and other multinational tax avoidance. For the US, it's $189 billion annually. For China, $67 billion. And as I've noted, the figure for Australia, $6 billion US. But as a share of national income, the biggest victims of tax havens are estimated to be the world's poorest nations. As they say, the intensity of losses is substantially greater in low and middle income countries, and in sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America and the Caribbean, and in South Asia, compared to other regions. Ghana and Chad lose the equivalent of 7% of GDP annually to multinational tax avoidance. Guinea and Zambia, 4%. The Philippines, Solomon Islands, Fiji and Laos lose the equivalent of 2% of GDP annually. As a share of national income, that's more than the damage done to the US, to Australia or to China. Multinational tax avoidance places developing countries in a quandary. As the study notes, when firms respond strongly to profit-shifting incentives, increases in tax rates generate little or no increase in government revenue. The inability to constrain profit-shifting therefore constitutes an effective constraint on tax policy. And low rates may be the best feasible policy given this constraint. This illustrates the broader finding that fiscal capacity tends to be low in developing nations. So what do we do? to make sure that developing countries get their fair share of multinational profits. The most important initiative is the OECD and G20's Base Erosion and Profit Shifting Project. It's been operating since 2013, working inclusively with over 100 countries and jurisdictions to tackle multinational tax avoidance and close gaps in international tax rules that allow multinational enterprises to legally, but artificially, shift profits to low-tax or no-tax jurisdictions. <coughs> Australia used to have a, a seat on the steering committee, but we no longer do. In effect, we've shifted from the front seat into the back seat. And that's a pity. 
If Labor wins the election on the 18th of May, it will seek to play a leadership role in international efforts to crack down on corporate tax avoidance. But there's also a really promising initiative directed at ensuring that developing countries get a better deal. In July 2015, the OECD and United Nations Development Programme joined forces to launch Tax Inspectors Without Borders. That followed detailed policy work by the Tax Justice Network, as well as significant public campaigns on tax evasion by non-government organisations, including Oxfam, Global Citizen, the Global Alliance for Tax Justice, Christian Aid and ActionAid. Tax Inspectors Without Borders facilitates targeted tax audit assistance programs in developing countries around the globe. Modestly funded, it's been hailed as being capable of ensuring the developing countries mobilise much needed domestic revenues in support of the Sustainable Development Goals agenda. It combines the OECD's technical competence in tax matters and its network of tax experts with the United Nations Development Programme's country-level presence around the world, access to policymakers at the highest level and expertise in public financial management. Tax Inspectors Without Borders consists of four components. One, host administrations. Those tax administrations in developing countries who are seeking expert assistance to build audit capacity. Part two is the experts. Either recently retired, current or former tax audit experts with experience working in national tax administrations. Three, the partner administrations who either offer via secondment uh, to uh, uh, provide currently serving, uh, serving officials to be experts for a Tax Inspectors Without Borders program uh, or lend their expertise to the management of the program. And four, donors, organisations providing financial support for the tax, uh, tax Inspectors Without Borders tax audit assistance programs. Current donors include Canada, the EU, uh, to, uh, don't know whether to say the UK, I guess I should say the UK, having said the EU, uh, and the United States. Are the programs designed to avoid privacy risks and put developing countries in the lead role? Host administrations must request assistance. They retain autonomy and control over their tax affairs. And to date, the results are stunning. The most recent Tax Inspectors Without Borders annual report found that in many cases, the ratio of revenue raised for host administrations to donor costs was 100 to 1. That's a rate of return that would make Warren Buffett blush. If anyone in the room knows of another public program with a 100 to 1 return, please let me know immediately. Stick your hand up at the end of the talk. I want to know about it. Since 2016, the program has raised hundreds of millions of dollars for developing nations. As Tax Inspectors Without Borders board member Ngozi Okonjo-Iweleka, who's also the former Finance Minister of Nigeria, puts it, according to the World Bank, the average tax-to-GDP ratio for Sub-Saharan Africa was just 15%. Aid is diminishing, there's more focus on domestic resource mobilisation. Improving tax policy and administration is a critical part of the revenue effort. Government also has a role in boosting trust and accountability in institutions handling public resources. She goes on to say that Tax Inspectors Without Borders has made commendable efforts in the past two years, including its increased focus on South-South cooperation, deploying tax audit inspectors 
to host administrations in Africa and beyond. She points out that developing countries won't be able to deliver on the Sustainable Development Goals without a quantum increase in the mobilisation of domestic public resources. And it must continue to play its role as a catalyst to ensure, encourage business to uphold even higher standards of reputable tax behaviour and avoid the reputational risk associated with aggressive tax planning. As she points, it, points out, it's pretty striking that an initiative with such an extraordinarily high rate of return is still in need of donor financing. At present, Tax Inspectors Without Borders is largely based in Paris and predominantly funded by European nations. It mostly uses European expertise. But it's expanding into the Asia-Pacific. Among the countries in our region who are calling for assistance in Papua New Guinea and Vietnam. In fact, it was in December of last year that Papua New Guinea's Deputy Prime Minister, Charles Abel, formally requested a Tax Inspectors Without Borders program for their Internal Revenue Commission to tackle base erosion and profit shifting issues in the mining, forestry and fishing sector. The audits will begin this year. So I'm delighted to announce today that if a shortened government is elected on the 18th of May, Australia will become a donor and partner in the program. In conjunction with my friend and colleague Penny Wong, the Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs, and in my capacity as Shadow Assistant Treasurer, I can confirm that Labor will commit $5 million annually on an ongoing basis to tax inspectors without borders. And additionally, we'll use a small amount of that funding to assist the Australian Tax Office to second experts at the request of host administrations, where that's appropriate and desired. Our commitment's significant, as it will allow the program to administer an Asia-Pacific hub and dramatically increase its work, which is already in high demand, across the Asia-Pacific. The funding forms a small component of Labor's proposed increase in overseas development assistance. And like our budgetary approach more broadly, we're funding our promises by tackling multinational tax avoidance and closing unsustainable tax loopholes. When it comes to improving Australia's own laws, Bill Shorten, Chris Bowen and I have developed a strong package of multinational tax avoidance measures. We'll tighten debt deduction loopholes by, used by multinational companies and increase the penalties for individuals who are promoting tax evasion and avoidance. We'll crack down on citizenship shopping by requiring all individual Australian taxpayers to tell the tax office if they have residency or citizenship in another jurisdiction. We'll introduce public reporting of country-by-country country reports and provide protection and rewards for tax whistleblowers. We'll introduce a publicly accessible register of beneficial ownership of Australia's listed companies and trusts. We'll require companies to disclose to shareholders as a material tax risk if they're doing business in a tax haven and require all firms tendering for big government contracts to disclose their country of tax domicile. We'll develop guidelines for tax haven investment by superannuation funds. And in fact, the specific Tax Inspectors Without Borders proposal uses funding fully provisioned from our Flights to Tax Havens policy announced last year. Under Labor, travel expenses to and fro blacklisted tax havens will no longer be able to be automatically claimed. A government's international po development policy has to accord with Australia's values. As Penny Wong recently put it, Labor's foreign policy is founded on the belief 
that we deal with the world as it is and we seek to change it for the better. This means a foreign policy that is not just transactional, but purposive. These purposes are defined by our values, interests and identity. Compassion, equality, fairness, democratic principles and the protection of rights. And we know what our interests are. The security of our nation and its people, prosperity of the nation and the people, a stable, peaceful region anchored in the rule of law and constructive internationalism. And we know who we are. An inclusive, diverse nation which draws strength from the waves of immigrants who have come to our continent and from our First Peoples. Our foreign policy will speak to who we are, the confidence we have in ourselves, the values we believe in and the region and world we want to live in. The Shorten Labor Government will increase overseas development assistance as a share of gross national income every year that we're in office, starting with our first budget. In government, we'll rebuild and grow Australia's International Development Assistance Program and work with the international community to achieve the long-standing funding targets set out in the Sustainable Development Goals. Development assistance under Labor grew every year when we were last in office, reaching around 0.35% of gross national income. The Abbott-Turnbull-Morrison governments have slashed the aid budget to 0.21% of gross national income. That's the lowest level on record. If the aid budget follows its current trajectory, development assistance will drop to 0.18% of gross national income in 2022, and to 0.16% by the end of the decade. The coalition's cuts have impugned our reputation internationally, undermined our national interests, damaged our efforts to alleviate poverty, and made our region less secure. Today's Tax Inspectors Without Borders announcement complements Labor's practical commitment to ensure more dollars are sent to developing nations through remittances. And we'll do that by making sure that more of those dollars make it to the intended hands. Globally, remittance flows are almost a trillion Australian dollars. For many developing nations, remittances are worth more than foreign aid. Some economies would collapse without them. In Tonga, for example, they're a third of national income. And behind that statistic are thousands of hard-working Tongans putting in a few extra hours of work so they can give some of their paycheck to less fortunate family members. Yet according to the World Bank, an Australian who remits money overseas will see, if they remit $1,000, 77 eaten up in foreign exchange fees and charges. There's an easy solution to getting that, those fees down. Full fee transparency. That means remittance providers would have to tell uh, their customers the total cost of sending money uh, offshore. Not just the flat fee, but the exchange rate spread. Relative to a bench the same benchmark you'll see if you go to Google Finance or Yahoo Finance. Providers can quickly calculate their total fees, but right now they're not telling them, telling their customers in most cases. Under a shortened government we change that. And that commitment to reducing the cost of remittances illustrates our belief that reducing global poverty must require a full, a full court press. We've got to improve institutions and increase aid. I'm a strong supporter of the try, test, learn approach. And Labor's Evaluator General will aim to ensure that we have more randomised trials in our aid program. But unlike the current government, we won't give lip service to innovation 
while slashing funding. Under Labor, we won't just provide more support to developing nations in the Asia-Pacific. We'll also ensure they get more remittance flows. And through tax inspectors without borders, we'll ensure they collect more of the tax revenue that they're, they're entitled to. 13 years ago, experts of the Tax Justice Network travelled to several African nations to discuss the problem of tax compliance. One official told them, when we're up against these gigantic companies, we're totally outgunned by their legal teams. As their network's report noted, you might find a junior auditor with three or four years of experience of complex transfer pricing issues going up against global companies with half a dozen top tax lawyers and accountants in their team. David against Goliath stuff. But David's hands were tied because none of the relevant accounting information was being shared with him. Things are shifting. As a result of Tax Inspectors Without Borders, Captain Jack Sparrow, Stefan Scholz, Jamaican tax officials are finally getting the upper hand. As one commentator recently observed to The Economist magazine, recently a team came back from meeting one company so excited. For the first time ever, when dealing with a large taxpayer, our people did the talking. And the multinational representatives on the other side sat dumb, struggling to answer the questions. For Labor, our values don't stop at the continental edge. Social justice, decent work conditions and human rights aren't just things we fight for in Australia. They're also values that inform our dealings with the rest of the world. The same goes for our belief that multinational firms should pay their fair share of tax. Tax fairness isn't just a domestic policy issue. Under a shortened Labor government, we'll work with other countries to improve the global rules and use our aid program to ensure the world's poorest nations are no longer being ripped off by some of the world's richest companies. Thanks very much. <laughs>